It's my privilege and pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, Dr. John Lloyd, who along with uh, Galen is one of our three elders that serves as our senior leadership team here at Christ Community, soon to be Mosaic Church Austin. And Dr. John tirelessly, as his wife will attest, tirelessly saves the world. And so by day, uh, he's a superhero who, who, who's a neonatologist and saves babies' lives. And the rest of his time, by night, afternoon, and all spaces in between, he's a dad of five children and, of course, labors here. So uh, John's going to be closing out our series on the Psalms this morning. So would you guys please give him a warm welcome. Good morning, everybody. As you can see, I've got a stool up here with all sorts of stuff on it. Um, This has been sort of a crazy week. In addition to my schedule being fuller than it ought to be and my my, uh, family being fuller than it ought to be and all sorts of challenges along those lines, cedar is hit. It's just really exciting. I seem to respond to that by making more mucus than any 10 people should. God was gracious in the first service, and um, uh, it was actually went very nicely from that perspective. We'll see if y'all are as worthy as they. Now, I've got one of my sons up here. The other two thought that it wasn't interesting enough to come. Way to go, Hayes. Thanks. Now, as Morgan said, um, we are closing out a series that we have been going through called the Messiah Songs, the Psalms of Christmas. Now, what we're doing with this is we're taking a look at how the Bible asks us or commands us to deal with our emotions. As we look out at the world, we're really offered a number of very inadequate solutions for what we're supposed to do with them. If you were like me and you grew up in a conservative religious culture, we were told when bad things happen, you shove it down really deep. You know, keep it secret, keep it safe. Sort of like the ring of ultimate power. We were to hide it away. As I'll come back to that later, we'll see that that almost killed me at some point in my life spiritually. Now, if you were to take a more modern, liberal, um, psychological approach, you would say, well, if you're feeling it or thinking it, it's got to be good and right. And with this wonderful advent of technology, we are able to shout our barbaric yawps to give a little shout out to Whitman there, in a way never before possible. With Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, we can take and have an emotional bloodletting that the entire world can see. But the Bible says neither of those will work and offers us a unique, and I will say counterintuitive way to not just handle our emotions, but to hone them to make them into something useful and more powerful than they would be otherwise by praying them unto our God. You see, we're able to take to our creators, our very, the very author of our emotions themselves, the full spectrum that they afford us and bring them to our God in prayer. And I will challenge you with the idea that that, that is the key aspect of the Psalms. That is the critical element that makes them what they are for so many lives. As we step back and consider the song, say, why are they so powerful? I mean, how many other song prayers from, you know, 5,000 years ago or 4,000, they were written over hundreds of years, can you quote? But our culture has been fixated on these prayer songs for centuries, They're so important that Jesus, all throughout his ministry, and I'd also like to point out increasingly so as he approached the cross, quoted from the Psalms. John Calvin thought them to be so important that he made sure that every single psalm was sung in corporate worship at least twice over the course of the year. Benedictine monasteries are set up such that we can see all 150 of them in a week. I mean, it's amazing. The, the, the book of Anglican prayer was set up so that in a month you could pray through each of the psalms. So what is it about these song prayers that so captivate us? I would say it's this. These are God-soaked realities. Let me say that again. It's reality. Life as we really live it but soaked in 
bathed in God. In the Psalms, we have the full spectrum of human existence laid out before us. The very pinnacle of joy, the very depths of despair, the disenfranchised, fatherless children, fathers betrayed by beloved sons, poverty, war, famine, even graphic violence, all course through the fabric of life as it is woven into the tapestry of dialogue with God brought to life in the Psalms. Truth about our world and ourselves is of critical importance today because we have so many voices, so many examples saying, you can be whatever you want to be. And even better, God can be whatever you want him to be. Now, I'm not saying don't try bold things or stretch the envelope of who you are, but all these things we have to do within the confines of reality. So how does this complicated book of raw life end? It ends in praise. The last five chapters of the Psalter, the Hallelujah Psalms, are all about praising the Lord. The 150th says praise 13 times in only six verses. As we get into these, I'm going to read from these, and I want you to just listen. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I, am, uh, while I have my being. Praise the Lord. <coughs> for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him from the heights. Praise Him all His angels. Praise Him all His host. Praise Him sun and moon. Praise Him all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with the sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Do you think, church, a point is trying to be made here? We as people may not be the sharpest of species, and I among them may not be the brightest, but I see God's trying to make a point. He's got this amazing collection of prayerful interactions between his people and his being. And he closes it with this crazy crescendo of praise from every possible aspect of our existence. From every place and in every way we are to praise him. Death and life, violence and peace, despair and hope, solitude and family fear and courage. They pepper the Psalter. And then it culminates in this all-encompassing crescendo of praise for the Lord God. Now, if you're like me at all, and a bit skeptical, I prefer to think of that as being realistic. The idea that God would ask us for prayer or demand prayer or praise of us is a little bit off-putting and maybe even offensive if that's you here today, please know you're not alone. And if you're here because you visited someone for the holidays and they've dragged you here, thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. But please, don't nod off or play on your phone. Because I think if we are able to not just listen to what we're going to talk about today, if we're able to live it, it will change our lives. Now back to the question of praising God. What kind of God demands to be praised? In the, in the 150th Psalm, of those 13 times praise is mentioned, 10 of them are commandments. We're not asked to do it, but we are commanded to do it. Is God some demanding, petty dictator or celebrity that says, oh, I need your, I need your praise? filling up something lacking on the inside or, or propping up an ego that, that needs something? 
Or what about this? Is it, is it like a spiritual bribe? Are we, are we praising God so that he doesn't do something bad to us or, or so that, hey, maybe he'll give us something good? Roman emperors of old embodied both of these concepts of, of praise when they would have their triumphal processions into Rome. Now, when they would go off on these, these uh, campaigns, and they would last for years sometimes, they would go out and they would capture lots of slaves, they would capture lots of, of treasure, they would capture animals, and, and the more exotic, the bigger the load, the, 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 the higher the number of, of slaves, the better it was. And so what they would do is they would come back to Rome, and they would process all of this stuff through Rome, the, the slaves and the treasures, the, the lions, the tigers, but then the emperor would come in last, and he would be in a chariot, and he would sit there, and he would have, or stand there, and he would have someone in his ear whispering, you're not a god, you're not a god, and you think, wow, that must have been some amazing scene, where there was so much praise, that they had to have someone specially positioned to tell this guy, even though it's so rapturous, you're not really a deity. Now, do you know how they got all those people out there, by and large? Two ways. One, they paid them, literally would go into neighborhoods and pay people to show up. Or they would take soldiers with spears and swords and pokey things and make them come out to praise the emperor. Surely that's not what we're talking about as God commands us to praise him. There's got to be another road, a holy road that allows us to understand better what it is when God commands us to praise Him. We will see with the time we have this morning that the praise of the only supremely praiseworthy one is an essential path for us to take to our surest and truest reality. One that will transcend time itself as it unites us relationally with the author and creation, creator of you, me, and everything else. As we examine praise today, I want to take a look at three things about it. I want to see that praise has foundational power, that it has healing power, and at the end, it has transformational power. Now, when we pray to God, we can basically do it three different ways. I can pray, I can pray outwardly, where I would say, I'm going to intercede for you, or I'm, I'm going to ask for something that I feel I need. Or I can pray inwardly, you know, God reveal things to me about my character, show me who I am, confess things, ask for forgiveness. Or I can pray upwardly, where I'm going to recognize the nature of God, and because of that, I'm going to offer praise or another type of praise, thanksgiving unto God. And what I want to see is that as we look at these three things, that praise, praise, undergirds our ability to do the other two properly. Because as I more clearly see God, I more clearly see my need for a Savior because my sin then stands out in starker contrast. At the same time, as I understand who He is and the source that He is for all the things in my life, I more and more completely understand my real dependence on Him. I'm able to shut out those voices in my head that all too often say, you did that on your own. You made that happen. But I'm able to, because of praising God, see that it is truly from Him that all good things come. So as I praise God, I'm better able to intercede for others. I'm better able to ask for the right things. And I'm better able to see my own need for confession, my own need for revelation, and ultimately transformation. Now, as we begin to see this, look through this question this morning, when Jesus began to teach us about prayer, how did he do it? The Lord's Prayer and his Sermon on the Mount quoted again and again. Now, when he started there to teach us, where did he teach us to start prayer? He said, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So before he asks for bread, before he asks for forgiveness, before he asks for relational changes, he first goes to God and said, you are worthy. 
Tim Keller, in a recent book he wrote on prayer, which I would highly recommend, um, puts it this way when he says, awe-filled adoration of God corrects the other forms of prayer. So we see the more correctly I understand the God who is worthy of my praise, the more correctly I'm going to be able to do the other types of prayer that make up the full spectrum of how I interact with God. Are you with me today? We're tracking. Excellent. A little bit of response every now and then. It sort of helps things move along. Awesome. So we see praise of the Lord is foundational in that it also provides us with security. You say, well, how is it secure for me to praise God? Well, as we look at the closing of the Psalter with these five psalms of praise, I want you to see that they are a reflection of, a foreshadowing of, the close of time itself that was penned by, Saint, uh, by the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos as he wrote the last few chapters of Revelation. In this way, the Psalms are a microcosm of all of human history. The Psalms are full of every type of emotion, situation, and person that is written into this greater story of mankind. To this, our Creator says to His children, Don't worry. I will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. I will make all things new. That's so powerful if we're truly able to appropriate that for our own lives. I mean, to use a sports analogy, you know, if you're watching a game and your favorite team is down by you know, what seems an insurmountable amount in the fourth quarter and you think there's no way they're going to win, but what if you knew how the game ended? What if you knew they would come back and actually uh, somehow be able to win that game? Would it not change you in that moment? The circumstances of the game would be exactly the same. They'd be down in the score. They'd, they'd be playing poorly. Things would lo- all look against you. But you'd know how the story ends. Our loving Heavenly Father has given us such a glimpse into how history itself ends. And He says it will end with praise. It will end with every knee bowing, every tongue confessing, Jesus Christ is Lord. As it's foundational, it also, though, has the power to heal us. It awakens in us this reality of who we are and who God is. In C.S. Lewis's book, Reflections on the Psalms, he considers why we praise anything at all, whether it's music, art, literature. When we praise something, he says, Rightly, it's because it's admirable. There's something intrinsically in it that says not just you can praise it, but you ought to praise it. You should praise it because if it's correctly understood, it would bring something out of you that we would call then praise. He says we are made poorer if we don't praise that which is praiseworthy. So dispelling the petty concept of praise that's awakened in us by, this, by, by considering something even as magnificent as a Roman emperor, the praise of the author and creator of beauty and majesty themselves is, according to Lewis, simply to be awakened to reality. It is to have entered the real world. Now, as many of you know, I'm a pediatrician and I have the, the blessing of being able to walk with families through intensive care experiences. Let me tell you, one of my first jobs is to introduce them to reality, right? If I'm going to begin to help heal their, their child, even physically, I've got to start with the emotional, spiritual, psychological components in their world that need to be brought into reality, Now, you could imagine that parents come in there with so many feelings. They're all twisted up on the inside because, honestly, nobody wants to meet me except when they need me. Nobody's anticipating, or very seldom is someone anticipating me. They're thinking, I'm going to have a baby. This is going to be wonderful. It's exciting. And then things change. And so they come into my world with already the sadness of something they hoped for or expected not coming to pass. And so I have to then begin to introduce them to a new reality. And sometimes they come in thinking, oh, this is really no big deal. It's all going to be okay. And I have to bring them to the reality that, yes, this is life-threatening. This could change your life forever. 
Sometimes they come in thinking, oh, this is terrible. It's going to be the worst thing ever. My life's going to be different forever. And you know that probably it's just an inconvenience. Everything's very likely to be fine. There's a full spectrum of this. People wanting assurances where I can't give them. Sometimes we're having a conversation that ought to be life and family changing. Yet I'm having to try and wake some guy up or tell him to get off his cell phone and stop playing on it or texting or whatever he is doing. Sometimes it's merely to, to, to look at a mother and say with as much fatherly and physician authority as I have, as, as I have it's not your fault. But let me tell you, if, we, if I am to help my parents heal, help these families heal, I've got to introduce them to reality. Now, as spiritual beings, our emotions, our psyches, our souls too, must be introduced to reality to begin to heal. When properly appropriated, reality is a tremendous healing thing. Now, candidly, as we cultivate this relationship, not as we, not candidly, but candidly cultivating a relationship with God Almighty, which means to bring the truth of everything that we are before Him, all our emotions, His presence and His involvement, His speaking into that, has the power to change. And it all culminates eventually in praise. Walter Bergman puts, this, puts this idea like this in praying the Psalms when he says, Thus I suggest that most of the Psalms can only be appropriately prayed by people who are living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to the raw hurts, the primitive passions, and the naive elations that are at the bottom of our life. For most of us, liturgical or devotional entry into the Psalms requires a real change of pace. It asks us to depart from the closely managed world of public survival to move into the opening, frightening, healing world of speech with the Holy One. Oh, church, that we too would be able to live, as he said, on the edge of our lives that we would be able to bravely and courageously enter into the frightening but healing world of speech with the Holy One. But Lewis, as he takes this concept of what it means to praise something praiseworthy, he takes it even a step further. Not only is it the natural reflection of the intrinsic worth of something, he makes it what is, I think, just a beautiful observation. And he says that it is actually the final step in or the culmination of or sort of the crowning jewel of all our desires, all our pleasures. He says, I think we, this is a quote from Lewis. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out to compliment It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed in praise. What he is saying is that for us to praise something that is worthy of praise, something that is by its very nature praiseworthy, is to complete that delight. So that really, delight is a step towards praise. That all delight, like all life, in a way, should lead us to praise. So one has not truly enjoyed anything as much as one could until we praise it. Now, think about this for a minute. There are all things in our lives that we could relate to with this point. Now, if you're a sports fan, you can think about the enjoyment of going to a sports bar and, or, or in someone's living room and watching a game together so you can banner back and forth about how amazing something is. If, it's a, if, it's, if art's your thing or, or literature or your children, to be able to get together with people who share those same loves and praise the wonder of the Sistine Chapel or Carnation Lily Lily Road or that crazy catch that Beckham made a number of weeks ago. I mean, literally, I walked into the doctor's dining room on Monday after that game, and I don't know how many of y'all saw that, but one of the Giants' wide receivers made this just crazy catch. 
I mean, he touched it with like these three fingers. It was thrown like 45 yards. I don't know how he even saw the ball, let alone caught it. And all over the dining room, praise was going on. You could just hear one person after the other recounting the story of that catch. ESPN played it like a million times. Now, in our house, we, we love the, the Tolkien stories, the Peter Jackson's movies that have come out with this. And while we all love them, my daughter's like nuts with this stuff. I mean, please, don't try and get in some challenge with her about any of the actors or where they came from or what their names are or whatever, because, man, she just she knows it all. Every behind-the-scene thing. We saw this last installment on Wednesday, and she has been this nonstop praise fountain with tears and emotions and all kinds of things ever since. I mean, to to try and bottle that up, I'm afraid she'd just pop. But what I want us to see, that church, if we can so effusively, so instinctively, so naturally praise these things that, while they're good and wonderful, there will be another next best catch ever somewhere. There will. The series Jackson did, as wonderful it is, if we wait long enough, someone's going to remake them. And I bet they'll be pretty good. They may not be this good. My daughter would fight me over that point. But let me say, why are we so able to do that? Yet it's hard for us, it's, no, it's, it's hard for me to praise the one who is truly worthy of all praise from every perspective with that same effusiveness that same verve. Now, what Lewis says in a wonderful book he wrote called Letters to Malcolm is that, is that as we praise things, there's this opportunity, or as we enjoy things, there's an opportunity to trace what he calls shafts of glory back to the Creator. So again, w- come back with me to all, whatever you like, whatever you really get passionate about. The reason you're able to be passionate about that is because of something that God Almighty designed. He put it in you, and he put it in that moment. So take the the Beckham catch, for example. The idea is that we are not truly able to enjoy even those things that are most enjoyable to us until we take the step not of just praising it here, but recognizing that until we understand that the reason Beckham was able to make that catch was because of God Almighty and the design that he put into that man's amazing body that allowed him to shed that defensive man like a a tearaway jersey, to, to see a ball and reach for a ball with courage and hope that he might not even be able to see, to be able to step onto a field of combat, of of competition, of adventure with strength and courage that would allow that moment to happen. All of those things are because of who God is in His very nature. And it makes them worthy of offering up praise to Him. And so my prayer for myself, my prayer for us as a church, is that we are able to get into the habit of tracing these shafts of glory that come around us every single day back to the author and creator of all the different little pieces that go into the enjoyment of that moment and thereby really be able to enjoy the world around us, in a sense like in technicolor, that nobody who doesn't understand and know Jesus Christ could ever enjoy them. So it opens up for us this, 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 uh, paths of literature and art and, and even athletics in a way that, that, that is made sweeter and better and more real because of who Jesus Christ is. Lewis then says that to not praise God is to live in unreality or poverty. Timothy Keller puts it like this. He says, we cannot merely believe in our minds that he is loving or wise or great. We must praise him for those things and praise him to others if we are to move beyond the abstract knowledge to heart-changing engagement. One of the other importance I want us to see is that as we do this, we are more in tune with his love, with his mercy, with these beacons of hope and joy that will stand with us even in the dark times as we are able to continue to trace these shafts of glory back to our creator, illuminating 
sort of like Frodo's little thing in, in, in the Lord of the Rings that lit up the dark world around him. We too are able to take these joys and desires from other seasons, translate them into these darker ones that will allow us to continue to praise God irrespective of our circumstances. Now, one might reasonably ask, how does developing a love for God, which comes only through praise, help me heal? St. Augustine, in his commentary on 1 John, says it like this, such is each one as is his love. I have to read that very carefully because it's written in very odd order. But basically what he's saying is that we are what we love. That we cannot help but become the things that we adore and the things that we love. All through Augustine's writing, he has this central theme that says, basically, people are going to pursue things that they, they think will make them happy. They're going to identify the things that they think will make them happy and be attached to them, and we'll think of that as love. But you know, because of our sin and our brokenness, we are really bad at choosing the things that are going to make us happy. I mean, if, you're, if you've been single or are single, you can relate to the idea that would say, if I get married, then I'm going to be happy. Too many in our society who are married have this thought that says, well, I'm just going to be happy if I didn't have him or her. Or I need a new job. I need more money. I need a different set of relational circumstances. I need new friends, a new house. Now, it's easy for us at times to see the sandiness of that foundation, right? You know, that can't be our ultimate situation, our ultimate foundation. But what if some of these trickier things, like the growth of this church, for example? It's a wonderful thing. What about the growth of your small group? What if you put your ultimate love on the desire to bless people around you or to even serve in the church in a leadership capacity, which the Bible says is a good thing? What if even like abuse, like to, 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 to correct abuse, you know, you're going to be a social worker and correct the abuses of the world. You work for CPS and, and ride in to save these, these children in horrible situations or to overthrow a corrupt government or to change a, a, a corrupt political situation, or, or really hard, what if you, you set up as your ultimate love the ultimate salvation of a child who doesn't know Christ? Those are all hard things. They're great things in a sense. They're, they're worthy of your life, your time. Many of them even worthy of your, your life itself, things you would willingly lay your life down. But church, let me clearly say that if those things occupy the position of ultimate love in your heart, they're just as collapsible as the silliness of your job or your car. They won't hold the weight. And the problem is not that we love any of those things too much. The problem fundamentally is we don't truly love God enough. We don't see Him as He should be seen. Because let me tell you, when God comes into your life, there is no question of the position that he should occupy. He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't introduce himself and say, oh, hey, by the way, I'm God and I'm going to take over here and you should really adore me. When we see him, when we experience him, there is an awe and a richness that comes into our life that's in, uh, unmistakable. And it, in a, it immediately begins to reorder our loves, which reorders our lives. In his confessions, Augustine says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now we have seen that when we praise our Heavenly Father, it's foundational as we, for our interactions with Him. We've also seen that as we learn to see Him and praise Him, that it heals us and it heals us by reordering our loves. It heals us by, by showing us what reality is. But in the end, I want us to see that this process is transformational. Again, quoting from Keller's book on prayer, I want to say, uh, to change people most profoundly, we must change what we worship. Thinking, arguments, and beliefs are crucial as means of moving the heart, but ultimately, we are what we adore. 
We are what captures our imagination, what leads us to praise and to compel others to praise it. Our inordinate anger, anxiety, and discouragement result from disordered loves. Our relational problems result from disordered loves and our social and cultural problems as well. What can re-engineer our very inner being, the structure of our personality? What can create healthy human community? Worship and adoration of God. We must love God supremely, and that can be cultivated only through praise and adoration. So you see the Psalms then become a sort of combat manual for the real world. They present our lives, our sin, and its resultant complications and hardships as they really are, not as watered-down, G-rated shadows on the one hand, or overly dramatic black hole ends unto themselves on the other. The God in the Psalms is neither one-dimensional in that he's not a, a, a warm, fuzzy God who, who's all intimate and only loves that we see so commonly on talk shows. But he's also not, on the other hand, this austere, distant God who only judges that is so common in most of the rest of the world. And what I want us to see is that as we know him to be both, this God of tremendous intimacy and God of tremendous love, but also he's a God who is wholly other. And he is a God who will judge us with a severity that we can't even comprehend. That when we see both, he's more of both than when either is considered in, in, independently. Eugene Pat, uh, Peterson in Answering God describes this, this grittiness of the Psalms with a phrase I love. He says, he calls it angular austerity. You know, this angular austerity for us stands in the light of ultimate reality against which this pseudo-reality that we love to create where we define ourselves and we define God just looks like something that's not even existent. So again, I close with why does the Psalter end in a crescendo of praise? Well, it's ultimately because all of our prayers, all of our lives, and at the end of the day, history itself will end in praise praise and delight in God our creator. Eugene Peterson in Answering God put it like this. He said, all true prayer pursued far enough becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, will end up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime. But in the end, but the end is always the same. Praise. It may take years, decades even, before certain prayers end up with the hallelujahs in Psalms 150. Not every prayer ends with praise. In fact, most prayers, if the Psalter is a true guide, do not. But prayer is always reaching towards praise and will finally arrive there when earth and heaven are met. Now, I know that is one of those things that's pretty easy to say but really, really hard to live. Praise and delight in his mercy and grace and steadfast love? Sign me up. That's easy. It's easy to get excited about those wonderful things. Birth, marriage, job success, blessing. This is an essential first step. And I don't want to put that down in any way because that's a, that's a big first step, right? To see the good things in our lives is not the result of who we are, but to see them as a result of who God is and to bring them to Him with thanksgiving, that's an important first step. But we cannot stop there. The Psalter doesn't stop there. But the reason the Psalter doesn't stop there is because life doesn't. Praise and delight in laws and commandments, a little harder, but after a while with a little perseverance, we too can pray as the psalmist did. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold. But surely, you don't mean the prayer in my finances when my business is falling apart or the prayer for my marriage when she's about to walk out on me or the prayer for my sick infant in the NICU that those prayers too will lead to praise. But oh, church, I do. 
I absolutely do. I critically, essentially, I don't know how else to drive the point home more, absolutely I do. Because of the nature of those moments. Remember earlier when I said that the pressing down, the sequestration of all these feelings in my heart as a young man almost caused me to lose my faith? See, I had unknowingly set up a good but unworthy object of my affections in my heart. I had learned to praise and delight in God for his blessings, and even at this point in my life, his laws. But no one had ever even mentioned to me the possibility of having to love and delight in him in the middle of suffering or challenge or difficulty. I was completely ill-prepared for this. Now, just before I was 15, my grandfather, who was this amazing man, had a stroke. A little less than six months later, just after my 15th birthday, my father, too, had this massive stroke. Now, these two men were such a blessing to me. They both loved Jesus in very different ways and modeled for me different aspects of who now as a man in my mid-40s I see God has created me to be. And then right as the, the game, in a sense, of my manhood was about to begin, they were gone. But they weren't quite gone. It was sort of like someone who loves to play baseball and, and there's this, this, this baseball that has some, some value that's put up on a shelf under a, under a glass case that you can, you can see but you can never quite play with. That's how I felt about these two men. They were, they were there, but they were, they were encased in this, this barrier that I could never get through. And so I began to pray, God, heal them. God, heal my dad's body, heal my grandfather's body, because I thought I needed them to lead me into this change of manhood. I needed them to lead me into the challenges of life. But as I prayed, and that prayer went unanswered the way that I thought it should be answered, my heart began to change, and voices in my head began to get angrier and angrier. And at the end of the day, it was no longer anger, but it was absolute rage that was inside of me. But I did my very best to toe the line and keep it bottled up inside. But as I did that, it came forth one day in my college dorm room in a violent eruption of rage aimed absolutely at God. It was a rage that had been whispering in my ear and then shouting in my soul, God's not good. God doesn't exist. This is all meaningless. But as I took that rage to God, not only did he not turn away, he did not try and defend the the position. He took my emotion, my rage in, and he didn't change the details of the situation, but he changed me tremendously. So without changing the facts, he changed my circumstances instantaneously. I was astonished that I was not rejected or debated. I wasn't ignored or diminished. But this one who was at once loving father and abandoned son met me and swallowed my rage and reordered my loves and began to lead me on the path of healing. You see, the guide for whom my soul longed turned out not to be my father or my grandfather. But he was right before me. And I was able to learn, to begin to learn, to praise in the middle of my praise because he'd been there before. He'd been there before. He was there to guide me in the way. Psalms 146 may start with praising the Lord and it sure ends with praising the Lord. But in the middle it says, who executes justice for the oppressed. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. You see, the one who met me in my dorm room that evening was oppressed, but he wasn't rescued. He was a prisoner and was not freed, but died as he hung on a cross. He was a humble sojourner from a distant land who knew the very depths of being fatherless. 
But he had no one who came and rescued him. As he echoed the psalmist from the 22nd Psalm, as he hung on the cross with a final plea for help, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't answered that day. But you know why he wasn't answered? He wasn't answered because he knew that he needed to be there to answer me and you as our souls and hearts cry out from these moments of darkness. You see, I thought my greatest need was the healing of my father's body, but a greater need than that was the healing of my soul. And I wouldn't have called it delight then. It didn't feel like praise at the time. But there was a clear godness of the moment. And it began to build in me a strength and a steel that I wouldn't trade for anything. It began to pour into the very depths of my soul the truth that God is indeed bigger than any of the problems in my life. He is indeed bigger than any of the challenges that I face. And he is indeed so, so worthy of praise. Well, it wasn't simple or easy. It sure was good. I couldn't sit here and say that I have delight in my father's stroke or I have delight in his ultimate death. But what I can say is that being able to delight in the one who created me and who created him and created his body that even allowed for the stroke to happen, learning to delight in him in those seasons has made me the man I am today more than anything. It has changed me in a way that I wouldn't trade for anything. So as hard as it is to say, if I had to give up all of that, I wouldn't do it. Even if it meant having him back here is exactly as I would want. See, without knowing the pit of despair, but also the delight and the praiseworthiness of the companion who had preceded me, but he went alone. He didn't have anybody to join him there. I wouldn't have been in a position this last week to stand with a father who just lost a son as he wailed, my son, my son. I was able to stand there and literally hold him like a child with hope and with courage in my heart that would not have been there if I had not been able to be met in the very blazing furnace of my own challenges, of my own dark places, of my own hot places by one who met so many there. Hananiah, Mishael, Azael was met by the pre-incarnate Christ and taken through their furnace with no hair singed, no smell of, of, of smoke on their bodies. And so in a sense, I too was met by my Savior in what was a fiery moment of min, in my life. And while I can say that, that it has changed me in a wonderful way, I don't have the smoke of bitterness on me. I don't have the, 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 the singe of, of, of inability to trust or inability to, 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 to delve fully into my relationships. You see, that had the power to change how I fathered my children. It had the power to change how I husbanded my wife. But you know, God met me in that moment. And he showed himself so real, so powerful, that he has taken the rest of my life and framed it against something that is immovable and unshakable. Now in a moment, the band is going to come here. and We're going we're to praise God. But church, I want you to be encouraged with the reality that our God, the God we worship, is bigger than whatever's in your heart today. In a group this size, I know people brought all kinds of things in here. You brought past that said, I, I, I've been abandoned by my father. I've been abandoned by my mother. No one sees me. No one cares. You don't know how hot this furnace is. This isn't the marriage I wanted. These aren't the kids I thought I was going to have. But let me tell you, we have a God who's able to meet us in the midst of any fire. A God who's able to meet us in the midst of any moment. The game is never over. And to show us not just who we think we'd like to be, because it is always a shadow 
of the reality of who God's called us to be. We never go deep enough, never go far enough, never go big enough. We do not dream big enough for our own lives. But God is able to step into the hearts and the souls and the minds of each and every one of us and He is able to transport us to a place that we could never even imagine. So I'd like you to stand with me as I pray. Church, we are going to bring up all the different hurts and things in our lives right now. We're going to offer them unto God in praise. We're going to trace those shafts of glory to their Creator and be at a a challenging time. If your heart's full of sorrow, take that to Him. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. He will be able to meet every bit of it. He's seen it before. He sees it in you now. It's not going to be a surprise, but He wants your supple heart. He wants you broken and, and bent before Him in a righteous way because of who He is. And church, He will meet you and lift you up. The psalmist says that He's made a level place for His, feel, for his feet. The idea is of a soldier in combat. So I know many of you feel like you're in combat today, but you are not there alone. Dear Heavenly Father, we bring all this to you. Your word says that our praise is a throne that you sit on. So meet us there, God. Meet us in the middle of the battles that we are fighting. Your word says that you are a lifter of our head, that you are a shield about us. Your word says you are a a flowing stream under our feet, dear God, that nourishes a tree that will not be shaken. Yes, there are seasons in that, dear God. There, There are seasons where leaves are on the tree and where they fall off. There's a season of fruit and there's a season where the fruit falls off, God. But at the end of the day, that tree will stand forever. It will stand eternity. Your word says that you will make all things new. There is not a tear that has been cried. There's not a prayer that's been offered that has not been answered, that has not been heard, that has not been appropriated into the life that God has for you. So be filled with hope, with courage. As we enter this holiday season, trusting God that you sent us your son, you sent us a baby, something that doesn't seem like a soldier or something to to conquer, dear God, but you did it in an unexpected way with a baby in a manger in an unforgotten, in, in in a forgettable place, dear God. But it's unforgettable because it changed all of human history. We ask this unto you. We offer it unto you with praise, God. Praise you, God. Amen.